Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen, one of the co-founders, and we're glad to have you along with us as we start a new chapter in The Lincoln Project podcast. On today's show, we want to take some time to reflect on where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. So with that, I'm excited to introduce our all-star panel for today. First is longtime political strategist and corporate communications expert, Steve Schmidt. Steve, thanks for joining us. Reed, how you doing? Good to be with you. Also with us is author of Everything Trump Touches Dies and the key creative mind at the Lincoln Project, Rick Wilson. Hey, Rick. I am delighted to be here. And rounding out the panel is Stuart Stevens, legendary Republican strategist and author of the book, It Was All a Lie. Stuart, thanks for coming along today. You bet, Rick. Great to be here, man. So I want to remember back to last summer when we at the Lincoln Project changed what we said about the 2020 election. At first, we said that the campaign would be over when Donald Trump was defeated on November 3rd. But we soon realized that wasn't right. In fact, the campaign wouldn't be over until Joe Biden took the oath of office on January 20th. So, Steve, I want to start with you. Can you give us a sense of what you've seen, not only since Election Day, but since the Capitol was stormed on January 6th? And where do you think that takes our country from here? What I saw was an incitement to violence on the basis of a great lie by the president of the United States, by Josh Hawley, by Ted Cruz, by Kevin McCarthy, by Ron Johnson, by Mo Brooks, by Donald Trump Jr., by Kimberly Guilfoyle, by Mark Meadows, by a lot of the personalities at Fox. I saw incitement, specifically on the part of the president, incitement to violence. And then I saw a mob move on the United States Capitol. And that mob conquered the Capitol. The Capitol of the United States fell. And who did it fall to? Well, that was a noxious amalgam of white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, violent thugs there to hang the vice president of the United States and murder the Speaker of the House. They tore down the American flag. They raised the MAGA flag in its place. They beat a policeman to death. They beat another policeman with an American flag. They desecrated the floors of the House of Representatives. They desecrated the floor of the United States Senate. They rifled through the deaths of the people's representatives. They were there to do violence. And in the end, six people were killed in the greatest American invention of all, the peaceful transition of power. Tradition that began in 1797 came to an end. And that's on Donald Trump. And that's on all of the people who participated in poisoning democracy, faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system, of the election, on the basis of the big lie. And so when peace is restored to the Capitol, there's a vote. And that vote, I think, has profound meaning. So once peace was restored to the Capitol and the vote to certify the election resumed, 
we still saw Republican members of Congress vote to reject the certification of electoral votes. Stuart, what do you make of that? You know, if you grew up in the South, as I did, particularly in the bad old days of civil rights era, all the language of this vote was very familiar. It was about illegal votes, illegitimate votes. That's the language that was used to describe African-American votes, really up until the 70s. That was what the whole concept of having a double standard of qualifying to vote was about, putting a jar full of jelly beans at a polling station and you couldn't vote unless you could guess the number of jelly beans in the jar, having to interpret a section of the Constitution to the satisfaction of the person administering the test. So sadly, this was an effort to disqualify millions and millions of African-Americans after they voted. It's extraordinary. You look at the areas that Donald Trump was talking about as being illegitimate, illegal. They're predominantly African-Americans. And, you know, that's continued now. You have Josh Hawley, who said that he voted the way he did, not to certify the election because it represented his constituents. There's hundreds of thousands of African-Americans in Missouri. I think those constituents wanted Joe Biden to be president. He just doesn't really see them as his constituents. Same with Sidney Hyde-Smith in Mississippi, who said the same thing. And it really falls into that category that we kept discovering in the Trump era of saying the stuff you're not supposed to say out loud, out loud. And so, Rick, the Lincoln Project wrote an op-ed right before Election Day last October that said this is going to happen, that people were going to cross the Rubicon, as Steve calls it. They were going to go across the river and they would not be able to come back. I think what surprised me, and Rick, I want to get your thoughts, too, is how many of them crossed that river, how quickly they did so and how easy it seemed to be for them. Why did these 147 members of the House, why did they go so easily? These were men and women in the Republican Party, led by Kevin McCarthy, who cowered in their offices, who piled furniture up on their doors to prevent a mob that was screaming, hang Mike Pence, kill Nancy Pelosi. They hid in their offices. They knew what had happened. They knew who had sent the mob. They knew why it was there. They were in just as much terror as everyone else. Because they realized the mob itself was out of control at that point, and no one was safe. But just a few days later, Kevin McCarthy led a shameful vote in the House where only 10 members, 10 and a half if you count one person who was in for one vote and not for the other, to protect Donald Trump one more time, to defend Donald Trump one more time, to send the clear signal that the Republican Party as we once knew it, in all its ups and downs, goods and bads, was absolutely dead, and that the only coin of the realm in today's political space for those former Republicans is absolute, complete fealty to Donald Trump at all times. And so they have accepted violent insurrectionists. They are now the party of sedition. They're the party of insurrection. They're the party of the Proud Boys. They're the party of people taking the filthy Confederate battle flag and dragging it through our capital. A flag that was a flag of treason that led to the most divisive war in our history that cost the lives of a half a million Americans, which, by the way, today would have cost the lives, proportionally speaking, of about 12 million people. And these people in the Republican caucus are now all in on the QAnon. They're all in on the conspiracy. They're all in on the crazy. They're all in on sedition. They're all in on treason. They have abandoned every shred of decency and honor and integrity. And look, there are plenty of people in the Senate who are right there with them. You look at the treason caucus in the Senate, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Rick Scott, 
who is now the chief fundraiser for the NRSC. And of course, as Stuart mentioned, Cindy Hyde-Smith and Ron Johnson, our old favorite, and Tommy Tuberville. And when you examine the audacity of these people calling now for unity, saying that an impeachment was too divisive, saying that we don't dare continue to pursue this because, you know, Donald Trump's just a private citizen now. You know what? Conservatives used to believe that if you subsidize something, you get more of it. They used to make that argument about welfare all the time. They used to say, oh, if you give people on welfare more resources, then they're just going to be lazy. But that idea was really fundamental to a lot of conservative economic thought. Subsidies cause growth of the desire and the need for the subsidy. Right now, we are politically subsidizing, and American corporations are politically subsidizing, a Republican caucus that is inherently now devoted to un-American principles, devoted to authoritarianism, devoted to sedition, devoted to treason to this country, devoted to a racially charged plan to disenfranchise tens of millions of African-American voters. And they're shamelessly playing the refs in D.C., shamelessly crying and whining, oh, it's so mean to poor Donald Trump. Well, guess what? This is why we're here, folks. This is why we're still around, because we set out on a mission to defeat Trump and Trumpism. What you're seeing with these people is Trumpism in its full, horrifying flower. Stuart, you've worked for so many Republican candidates over the years. For so many of these folks who folded, 45 Republicans tried to table the impeachment trial of Trump. Did these folks ever have a core? Did they ever have something around which they sort of navigated their political lives? Or was it always just a means to an end and standing silently by happened to be the easier path? You know, in 2016, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump. It's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. You know, I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general election. And when he did, I started asking myself that question. I found it profoundly disturbing. I'd spent all these years of my life helping elect these people. How could this happen? And that's what led me to write the book I did. It was all a lie. I think the answer is they thought they believed in it, but ultimately we only believe in what we're willing to fight for. And I think that there is something about our political process, particularly drawing on the Republican side that is appealing and elevating a group of people who have real moral weakness, who are unwilling to fight for something. And the tragedy of this is, I mean, they're the legacy of the greatest generation. I mean, people like my dad, three years fighting in the South Pacific, 28 island landings. These guys, you know, they just came back and they went on with their lives and they handed this brilliant, shining legacy to this generation and they've just squandered it. We're going to look back on this as a uniquely dark period in American history. And I think the responsibility lies directly with these Republicans. So, Steve, you've talked a little bit about the fact that the Republican Party today is probably two-thirds Trumpish and one-third the vestigial establishment. As we're moving further into 2021 and into 2022, what does that fight look like to you? To me... We now knew the answer to the question that we collectively posed before the election about how many people would cross with Trump that Rubicon, that they would go and try to take action, whether it succeeded or not, that their intent, should it succeed, would maintain the power of the presidency in the hands of the person who had been rejected by the popular and sovereign will of the country. So now we know 147 members vote and form in this instant a new Jim Crow. First time ever 
by an act of Congress to throw away black votes at a federal level from certified state elections. The new Jim Crow is born in that instant. And they become, in that moment, faithless to democracy. The overturning of an election on the basis of a lie that's been rejected out of hand by 60-plus federal court decisions. And so the party fractures in that moment in a way that you'll see play out in the political combat ahead. You have the autocratic Trump side, and you have the pro-democracy caucus. The conservative leader of the House of Representatives, which is now a minority of the House, is Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Matt Gates is in the majority of the House when he declared this week that Trump is the forever leader of the Republican Party and the America First movement. So what's the America First movement? Well, I think it's like the America First movement of 85 years ago. It's a fascist movement. The people who stormed the Capitol wearing red hats and carrying MAGA flags fight for Trump. So where is Kevin McCarthy going? Ah, Kevin, an insider, a practitioner of astoundingly cynical type of politics. The embrace of the big lie. He says to his members, this is an easy vote to satisfy Trump's ego. No consequences. How stupid can you be? To a man who has all the qualities of the adult version of the Rush chairman, the backslapper, he'll do anything to get the vote, to get ahead, to be the leader. The more people he pleases, the more votes he gets. Deeply invested in Trump. So sycophantic that he actually sorts through the starburst candies to place them in a jar, removing all of the flavors that give displeasure to Donald Trump. So this man who says it's an easy vote, who now goes to Mar-a-Lago. You think about MacArthur in victory after World War II when being an expert on Japanese behavior, he says the emperor will come to him. So Trump is crazy and illiberal, but shrewd. He goes and sits in Mar-a-Lago and he waits. He waits for them to come courting, for them to come kiss the ring in his new throne room. And that's where Kevin McCarthy goes, threatening action all the while about the removal of the head of the Democracy Caucus, the head of the House Conservatives, from the leadership of the House. Really, the question is, is can they tolerate a pro-democracy voice in the leadership of the House in the bad faith service of Donald Trump and the purposeful obstruction of Joe Biden's ability to move the country forward? So, Rick, let's stay with McCarthy for a bit. He's in Mar-a-Lago. He's sitting there with Trump. And we know that McCarthy is teetering about to collapse in his leadership position within the House minority. We've heard he's threatening K Street. You know, I'm going to be speaker. You better make sure your money's there, et cetera, et cetera. So what is he asking for? I think what he wants is for Trump to secure McCarthy's financial status in the coming election cycle, because corporate America has decided very clearly you are either with the freedom side of the equation or you're with an attempt to disenfranchise tens of millions of African-American voters an attempt to illegally overturn a free and fair democratic election, and you're still siding with the forces of Donald Trump, even at this late date. 
And so Kevin is feeling a ton of heat because look, if you're Coca-Cola or Geico or Walmart or Microsoft or Google or Boeing, you don't want your brand associated with people who don't believe that black votes matter any more than black lives. You don't want your brand besmirched with not just overt racism, but explicit racism that says, we're going to take these black voters off the board. We're going to erase their votes. We're going to say that the lives and suffering and blood spilled to establish the right to vote for every American was pointless. We're going to say that elections don't mean anything if we don't like the outcome. We're going to say that violence driven by the Proud Boys, the neo-Nazis, the skinheads, the alt-right, the Roger Stones, the Ali Alexanders, the Mike Flynn's, all these people that conspired to cause this. You're going to say, that's our brand. If you give money to Kevin McCarthy now and the NRCC, you're saying, that's our brand. That's what we believe. That's what we embrace. That's our company's image and logo. And from now on, it's a Confederate flag wearing a pointy white hat. It's the Nazi symbols that you saw at the march. It's the Auschwitz shirts that you saw at the march. That's your brand now. You touch these guys, you are going to get the stink of their treason and their racial hatred all over you. So Kevin is scared to death about that. He's down in Mar-a-Lago saying to Trump, please, boss, please let me just go ahead and get your email list so we can use it for our guys because we can't raise the money we used to raise. We have to raise it from your people. So he basically was putting his head on the platter. And, you know, and Steve had a great analogy just then. At the end of World War II in the Pacific, MacArthur waited on the emperor to come to him. There's another moment at the end of the Pacific War that I think is really important, and the Republicans missed it. When they were standing on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay, surrounded by hundreds of other American and allied warships, the assembled senior leadership of the Japanese government, with the exception of the emperor, stood there having been told, you are coming to all sign the instrument of surrender. And as they stood on that hot battleship on a late summer day, Curtis LeMay had ordered every available aircraft they could muster to fly over the battleship and to fly over Tokyo. And the last planes that flew over were every single B-29 that could be flown because the B-29 was the plane that had dropped the bombs on Hiroshima. And it was a symbol to the Japanese, you have been defeated. It is over. It will never go another way. It will never change. The outcome is decided. These guys could have chosen a moment and said, you know what? Trumpism was a mistake. We have to recover from it. They could have flown the bombers over Donald Trump by voting to impeach him. They could have shown that they had independence and integrity and honor, and they chose not to do so. Why? For a number of reasons. A lot of them believe in him. A lot of them believe in this crap. But most of them are just cowards. Kevin McCarthy is a combination of cowardice and avarice and amorality and is one of the lowest figures in Washington. Because remember, guys, he started out hating Donald Trump just like everybody else. Stuart, what is it going to take to push Trumpism and the Trumpist wing back into the woods where they came from? My sense is that a lot of folks who stormed the Capitol had the opportunity and the wherewithal to make their way there, had places to stay. And you, of course, remember the Buffalo head guy who complained that he didn't get organic food when he was in jail. So I don't get the sense there were a lot of folks who were disenfranchised coal miners. It seems like these were folks who weren't necessarily economically anxious or resentful. It's that they had these opinions that were always sort of socially unacceptable. And Trump opened the door and now here they are. Like, how do we drive the Trumpists back? The essence of Trumpism is that it's easy. 
Trumpism demands nothing from us. And we always were taught, you know, starting like in kindergarten, there was behavior that represented the better side of you and behavior that represented the worst side of you. Trumpism is our worst angels. Trumpism takes that moment of road rage you feel when a car cuts you off and tells you that's your best self. And you're a sucker if you let anybody cut you off like that. You can't do it. Well, that's easy. And it's very appealing to a group of people who are looking for excuses other than themselves to blame for what is going on in their lives. And the idea is economic anxiety is just nonsense. I mean, these are the same people. They would have loved Barack Obama when unemployment went from almost 10% to below 5% when the S&P tripled. They didn't because it was never about the economy. It's always been about uh, grievance and really white grievance. You didn't see a lot of non-white terrorists attacking the Capitol. You saw non-white heroes defending the Capitol. And I think there is the story. I think the only way to deal with these people, and Steve has spoken eloquently about this, is to crush them. You have to beat them. It's really the only way. Look, I wrote a pretty bleak book about the Republican Party. It turned out to be way over-optimistic. And there is no line that can be crossed that will make Republicans, 90-plus percent of them, react with any sort of decency or courage. And we've tested that. You know, it was like Roy Moore running in Alabama. Like, what would it take to get white Republicans to support a moderate Democrat? What if the guy was a child molester? Nope, that's okay. Not a problem. What if your own office was invaded and police officer was killed? and you are almost murdered. Nope, not a problem, that's okay. So there's no redemption there, there's only defeat. And only in the lessons of defeat will they begin to reconsider their choices. I think we're in for a generational battle. Eventually, there is a market for a coherent, morally grounded center-right party in America. We don't have that now. I think we're in for a period of center-left government for probably the next decade. And then eventually, some center-right party that has a coherent theory of government will emerge. But I think it's a long struggle. Steve, we heard Stuart talking about the center-right version of government. But Trumpism is not about governance. It's about power. And so in the face of that, you've talked about that there are only two ways to bring an opponent to heal, exhaustion and submission. So as we look forward to Donald Trump's second Senate trial, where he will likely be acquitted again, What do you see in the coming months for the country as the true battle against Trumpism begins in this new era of American politics? We're obviously going to need to count this up, but let's just stipulate, right, that Oregon, California, Arizona, and Texas are Q parties, right? They're controlled by QAnon at the state party level. But Trump is in control of the Republican Party nationally. The House Minority Leader is going to Mar a Lago to show his obedience. The only thing that was in the platform of the party, as we've talked about many times, was the requirement of obedience and loyalty to Trump, right? So one of the hallmarks and features of any autocratic coalition is the purge, right? It's the condemnation of the less than fully loyal, no matter what. What we'll see now is vengeance and retribution against those who have put their constitutional duty and oath ahead of Trump. With the showdown coming next week, you know, as Kevin McCarthy has to decide what he intends to do about his Liz Cheney problem, who made a vote on a matter of principle and said that 
Donald Trump's violation was the worst betrayal of any in American history, right? So that's where we start out, right? We have this ascendant autocratic coalition that's going to drive out candidates like Portman, who likely would have fallen in a Republican primary, to getting ready to challenge candidates like Portman, who remain, to beat them with conspiracy theorist candidates, part of the coalition that stormed the Capitol. And so one of the things that people have sought to do, and by implication what their strategy is, is we have to contain this insanity. And I think that's the wrong thing. And we've talked about this, right? Is our belief, let it burn, that as the Republican Party is consumed by the fire it lit, by these conspiracies, by Trumpism, by the revenge, by the purges, by the obedience that is required by Trump to stay in Trump's good graces, the eternal Damocles sword that he hangs over the party as it consumes itself. That's bad for the institution of the Republican Party, but it will shrink nationally. It will be harder for it to win a national election. It will become less relevant as it becomes more extreme to the shaping of policy. So if Trump splits with the Patriot Party or not, in essence, we do have a Patriot Party. It's the America First movement that runs the Republican Party, which is a fascist movement that has an eternal, permanent, generational leader, apparently, Donald Trump, who then bequeaths the movement to one of his blood offspring, which is about as un-American a concept as there could conceivably be. So we're in for a long fight against an American extremism rooted in a fascistic ideology, deeply racist, an amalgam of all the most noxious elements steeped in profound dishonesty that we're going to be engaged with. And I think that's what the future is for us in this fight. Well, the good news is, is that we've seen over the last year plus that there are tens of millions and perhaps hundreds of millions of Americans who disagree fundamentally with Trump and what the Republican Party has become. So I think as the Lincoln Project starts to march down this road further and further, we hope to partner with as many different groups as we can who are going to fight along these battle lines. Because in a good sense, this is a six, maybe an eight-year war. But in the worst sense, this could be generational. Steve, Rick, Stuart, thanks for joining me today. For those of you listening, be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement and to join our mailing list, visit lincolnproject.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.